In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listeners, good morning and welcome to the Voice of Islam radio. You're listening to Mubarak Zamini and today I have with me, as usual, Daniel Ahmed. Um, and the time is now eight minutes past seven. Today, by the grace of Allah, we have um, three segments. The first segment is spirituality and health. Um, the second segment, which will be around after uh, eight, eight o'clock, is um, pork-related hepatitis E virus transmissions, um, a global perspective. And segment three is International Literacy Day. So, dear listeners, do stay with us um, throughout the, the duration of the show. Um, if you want to call in, the number is 020-8687-7878 or you can tweet us um, at our Twitter handle, Voice of Islam UK. Daniel, good morning and assalamualaikum to you as well. Um, Zakallah, good morning to you as well and uh, have a nice day. So, um, the, the walk into the office, to, to, into the studio today, uh, I see you're not wearing your full sleeve jacket as usually you're wearing your your half sleeve body warmer. So it wasn't that cold for you, was it? Yeah, um, yeah, I'm wearing gillet, so um, I wasn't thinking to take this off because the sun is shining at my face right now through the window, so it's kind of very hot. Yeah. Well, um, the weather outlook for 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 now is that today will 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 continue dry. Fine and settled with with plenty of sunshine throughout and little to no cloud around. A very warm or hot day too. Tonight will remain dry and it will be a calm night with largely clear skies. A few patches of mist and fog may form in places under the calm conditions, however. Tomorrow we'll see any patchy mist and fog soon lift in the morning. And then it will be another sunny and dry day throughout. Another hot day for many, with temperatures rising. Thursday will be another dry day with plenty of sunshine throughout once any early low cloud mist and fog clears. Some patches of low cloud and mist to start on Friday too. But once these clear, it will be another dry and sunny day. A cloudy and misty start for many on Saturday but the cloud and mist will lift once more to sunshine, staying warm or hot. So uh, there we have it. Um, hopefully for the next few days as well, we'll be seeing some nice and warm weather. Um, it is a bit it is a bit hot and, and we do have experience with our British sun, yeah. which is that it, it can kind of, um, it burns and it kind of stings as well. So it's best to, to, to keep yourself um, hydrated as well as looking out for for um, uh, lotions and and, and 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 making sure that you're keeping safe as well. I mean, just few just a few days ago, uh, I, I personally I was feeling that it's kind of getting very cold weather, mm. but um, don't know what happened to the weather. Just past few days, three or four days, it's kind of getting very hot. Yes, yeah, there's, there's been of a bit of. Um, like the weather just changed. It was yeah. it was a bit it was okay, and then it, it went a bit chilly, 
and oh, now it's sudden change, now yeah. it's suddenly it's gone and I think a lot of people have experienced um, due to the weather change um, I mean I had it myself um, mm. a, a, you know a flu with a, a sore throat and a runny nose yeah um, I'm just on the men now by the grace of Allah but um, yeah I think that that went around as well um, so yeah again once this once the sunny weather goes again everybody <laughs> needs to be careful and make sure that yeah. you don't get over excited and come out in your t-shirts every day and um, it's best to just take care of yourself yep. looking at the um, headlines for today uh, newspaper headlines ministers TV blunder and um, blarities are back so Rishi Sunak has been forced to start off the new political year on the back foot, according to the Financial Times. The paper claims the Tory party's autumn relaunch <coughs> has been derailed by the crumbling schools crisis, just as two by-elections are approaching. Sir Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet reshuffle also features on the front page. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Metro focuses its front page on comments made by the Prime Minister and Education Secretary uh, regarding the crumbling concrete debacle. According to the paper, Mr. Sonek refuses to take the blame and Ms. Keegan has, pro protected, has protested that the issue of unstable school buildings is not her fault. The I-Paper has decided to splash on Labour's shadow cabinet reshuffle. Five MPs from the Tony Blair era have been promoted in what the I says is Mr Starmer's aim to build a census team to sell his party to voters. Mm -hmm. The Daily Star offers readers a more light-hearted splash on Dracula's eating habits. However, like all the other papers, it has still made space for the school building story, opting to use an photoshopped image of Miss Kagan uh, with a clown's nose. Health Secretary Steve Barclay's comments on regular injections have made the front page of the Daily Express. Mr. Barclay refers to the weight loss drug as a miracle and says it could help cut the NHS's £6.5 billion annual bill for treating and tackling obesity. Miss Keegan has been forced to apologise over unguarded comments made after an interview about the crumbling concrete crisis. While Miss, uh, Mr. Sunak is under pressure, reports The Guardian. On the topic of Labour's shadow cabinet reshuffle, the paper reports that MPs on the Blairite wing largely pro uh, prospered as a result. The Daily Mail has headlined on Tory chaos as the school concrete crisis dominates the front pages again on Tuesday. The Prime Minister has been urged to get a grip and the paper reports that teachers spent last weekend scrambling to erect tent tented classrooms. Mm -hmm. And uh, class clowns uh, are the words the mirror has used to describe the Prime Minister and Education Secretary. The paper refers to thousands of kids waiting in limbo to start the new year school. And Shadow um, Education Secretary 
Bridget uh, Philipson has called the handling of the uh, crumbling concrete situation an utter shambles. Miss Keegan is fighting for survival over her handling of the school crisis, reports the Daily Telegraph. The Education Secretary is also said to be facing pressure after officials admitted to her being on holiday the week before schools were ordered to close, the paper reports. Mm-hmm. The Metro accuses ministers of a concrete bung- bungle in the way they've handled what it describes as the school building's chaos. The Daily Mirror brands the Prime Minister and the Education Secretary the class clowns who've left parents ferocious with the late closures of schools. Writing in the Times, the head of the National Audit Office, Gareth Davies, says the Conservatives have put sticking plaster on risky concrete by failing to invest in unflashy but essential tasks like maintaining buildings. The Guardian's Gabby Hinsliff says the latest failures highlight a wider national story for corners being cut and chickens squawking home to roost. The Daily Mail believes Miss Keegan's expletive-laden outburst during a television interview says it all about what it calls Tory chaos. The rant has left Miss Keegan fighting for survival, according to the Daily Telegraph, with one Conservative MP telling the paper her conduct was selfish and shameless. The Financial Times says the scandal has derailed Rishi Sunak's planned autumn relaunch leaving him on the back foot ahead of two by-elections this autumn. Elsewhere, a number of papers cover Sir Keir Starmer's reshuffle of Labour's shadow cabinet. The Eye says he's called up the Blairitize as he tries to build a, a team to sell the party. The Mirror's leader column, Sir Keir, has cracked the whip in a ruthless reshuffle that sets Labour up for a bitter battle with the Conservatives. Now the paper adds, the party needs vivid, radical and credible policies. Writing in the Times, Patrick Maguire suggests Sir Keir has completed the most dramatic metamorphosis in, in, in recent political history. The Sun welcomes the government's expected announcement later today that it's easing planning restrictions for onshore wind farms. The paper says the Tories have run scared of NIMBY voters for too long. However, Rowan Pelling in The Telegraph accuses ministers of wantonly sacrificing the countryside at the altar of net zero. The Scottish Daily Mail has accused Police Police Scotland of waving the white flag on crime by ordering officers not to follow up on minor offences like breaking and thefts. The paper describes it as a shabby surrender to criminals. The force says the plans will allow officers to focus on more <coughs> pressing issues. And the Time is one of several papers to report on a study that finds that when it comes to romantic relationships, opposites do not attract. The study by US researchers looked at data from almost 80,000 British couples 
It found partners were more likely to share traits such as political and religious views, IQ and education levels. The lead researcher tells the paper the findings back up the saying that birds of a feather are more likely to flock together. In that regard, Daniel, is there any other article um, that you want to mention? Um, I mean, um, as you also know that um, just a couple of days ago that uh, His Holiness Hazrat Mizam Masroor Ahmad um, was on his uh, tour to Jeremy Jalsa uh, for three days. <clears throat> uh, so, just to share the highlights of um, Jeremy Jalsa, um, that uh, on Sunday, uh, it was uh, happened on Friday, last Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So, um, <coughs> so. Uh, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad um, arrived in Frankfurt, Germany just um, uh, before 10.30 p.m. where 3,500 members of the Jamaat of the community um, had gathered in Beto Subhan Mosque to welcome Hazur. And obviously the, the atmosphere was uh, charged with with a profound sense of spirituality and happiness at uh, his arrival in Germany. Because <clears throat> it was after a long period of time that Hazur went there. It was like after four years. Because uh, as we all know that um, uh, due to Corona, corona um, His Holiness was unable to go there for a few years. So a long delay. So obviously the, um, the the members of the Jamaat of the community were also very emotional and charged with um, with with spirituality and happiness. So on 28 August, um, His Holiness uh, inaugurated the new mosque in Germany um, uh, by the name of Mubarak Mosque. Um, which is approximately 15 miles northeast of Frankfurt. Then where he gave a very short address um, where he expressed his immense gratitude to God Almighty for the, on the occasion. Uh, and he spoke on the topic of the mosque as a symbol of peace and religious freedom. Um, then uh, again he... Um, on 30th of August, um, His Holiness again uh, inaugurated another mosque um, by the name of Sadiq, Sadiq Mosque. And um, that is uh, located approximately 10 miles north of uh, Frankfurt. And um, uh, the foundation uh, stone uh, of this mosque was laid by His Holiness on 7th June. 2014. Then, uh, <clears throat> um, then the um, period of um, Jalsa Slana annual gathering um, started on the 1st of um, September till 3rd of September, um, where you know um, different uh, uh, speeches were presented. And obviously, His Holiness has uh, also um, delivered his address 
to the men's side and to the Lajna side, to the women's side as well. And um, he and he gave that message that um, that um, regarding the venue, he said that this venue is much larger. Uh, than the previous one because um, this is the first time uh, annual gathering in Germany hap uh, is happening in that uh, avenue in that area so Mazur said his holiness said that this venue is much large, larger than the previous one we used to have a four conference hall and now there are ten which is more than double last time his holiness attended in 2019 there were 40,000 attendees and this year there were uh, over 47,000 attendees um, and um, hopefully um, uh, we expected to jump 50,000 um, more than 50,000 in the next coming years so furthermore his holiness said that however sometimes there are also new challenges with new places this is the administrative challenge which means that there is a new local authority to deal with. This is the first time they get to know us. So we are learning how they work and they are learning how about how we work. So this is one of the challenges. Anyway, um, his holiness, you know, um, again, uh, gave a very beautiful concluding address um, um, with the, and the title of the of his address you can say that was uh, Islam is the origin of fundamental human rights so that's a very short uh, and brief summary of Azul's tour well um, I mean is is it's amazing to see I mean we watched the the annual gathering of, of Germany 2023 yeah. from on um, via mta.tv and um, you know the atmosphere just looked amazing yeah, the, 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 the level of uh, spirituality that you could feel um, in in the people's expressions just because they're in the pre presence of of the caliph of the age yeah. right um, it was it was amazing and um, hopefully next time we'll be able to attend ourselves and and see ourselves as well and um, then if you could explain for the listeners what's the uh, what's the the reason behind the annual convention what is the annual convention and why why does the the, the Ahmadi Muslim community um, every year uh, urge towards the annual convention which is known as the Jalsa Salana? I mean um, you can say it's uh, very obvious um, so the history of annual gathering or the Jalsa Salana started um, dated back uh, during the time of the promised Messiah um, and I believe it was started first in 1891. The founder of the Amdi Muslim yeah, community. The founder of the Amdi Muslim community. Um, and uh, in that um, annual gathering, there were only 75 people. Hmm. Um, can you believe that? And now it's been like uh, how many years? Uh, hmm. 122 years hmm. since then. And... Um, no, by the grace, by the grace of Allah Almighty, uh, we are we are blessed uh, to have His Holiness, uh, the fifth Caliph, and um, under his reign, um, um, there are about um, millions of Ahmadis around the whole globe, and have you have seen that there there were four um, 
more than 47 people 47 uh, members of the jamaat who yeah and just a month ago uh, the annual gathering was happened here in the uk and there mm. was also more than 40000 people who came to attend the jalsa indeed so a very blessed um, i would say occasion and um, mm. the 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 purpose the sole purpose of this annual gathering is to you know um, strengthen the brotherhood uh, to increase in one's own faith in spirituality um to evaluate uh, yourself uh, where where are you standing and um that's the whole purpose well as this is um explaining as well as as you explaining that this is for our spirituality as well at yeah. the same time and for our health as well um we'll head over to the to the for a, for a short break when we come back the first segment is about spirituality and health yeah. so hopefully we can expand there and and um we can have a, a conversation and if any guest wants to call in and and uh, speak with us as well uh, you're more than welcome to do so so dear listeners do stay with us uh, and join us after this short break selections from the writings of the promised messiah upon whom be peace the founder of the ahmadiyya movement in islam take note how the Holy Prophet of Islam remained resolute and steadfast in his claim to prophethood from beginning to end in the face of thousands of dangers and a multitude of enemies and threatening opponents. For years on end, he endures such hardship and suffering as increased from day to day, enough to make one despair of success. It is inconceivable for a man with worldly motives to have shown such prolonged endurance and steadfastness not only that, by putting forth his claim to prophethood, he even lost the support he had previously enjoyed. The price he had to pay for his one claim was to confront a hundred thousand contentions and invite a multitude of calamities to befall upon his head. He was exiled from his homeland, pursued with intent to murder. His home and belongings were destroyed. Several attempts on his life were made by poisoning. Those who were his well-wishers began to harbour ill for him. Friends turned into foes. For an age which seemed eternity, he braved such hardships, which are beyond a pretender and impostor to suffer through. A new station, the Voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the Voice of Islam. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Dear listeners, welcome back. Um, we are heading towards the first segment, which is spirituality and health. Uh, in this regard, if anybody wants to call in, the number is 020-8687-7878, or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Um, so now we have got our first guest with us, um, Professor Claire Fernow. Um, he's, um, sorry, my apologies, um, it's Dr. Larry. Um, he's a former GP and psychiatrist, uh, is a best-selling author of books on happiness, well-being, uh, wisdom and spirituality. Uh, including the psychology of spirituality and the big books of wisdom. Um, see his website www.ldc52.co.uk for details for, for his long-running uh, blog and all publications. 
Um, he is also responsible for the helpful worldwide wave of wisdom uh, website uh, www.net. So, Dr. Larry, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, a very warm, warm welcome and good morning and uh, assalamu alaikum. Thank you very much. So, the first question to you is that uh, what ways can spiritual um, practices such as prayers or rituals um, assist people in coping with anxiety, stress and illness? Yes, it's an excellent question. Uh, and I'd like to start by putting it into some context. Yeah, sure. For, for many people, this is a relentlessly secular materialist worldwide culture with the capacity to destroy itself, in which co competition dominates over cooperation. And so, in a sense, anxiety would be natural, normal. And in, a de in, and in psychiatry, it's as if there's a kind of worldwide epidemic of anxiety and depression, of hopelessness and despair, and of particularly of addictions, addictions to many different kinds of substances, but also activities, um, which I won't go in, into in great detail. So when you describe, when you talk about spiritual practices, prayers and rituals, assisting with and coping with anxiety and stress they indeed they do but we have to think in terms uh, not of just putting a band-aid on a gaping wound you know aspirin reduces fever but you need to discover and deal effectively with the underlying cause whether it's appendicitis or pneumonia mm. so I guess my uh, my approach to this question is uh, to go very deeply into examining our culture and ways, uh, the assumptions and priorities that seem to dominate people's lives. Uh, and yes, indeed, a religious and spiritual way of, of life, including um, spiritual practices, is an important way of defending oneself against the onslaught, if you like, mm. uh, of the destructive forces in the culture. And, uh, Doctor, you have spoken of uh, about uh, spiritual practices, uh, but uh, in your opinion, uh, what exactly is spirituality? Oh, dear me. This is a huge question that <laughs> I've written many books about. So, um, very difficult to pin down. And actually, mm. you know, you can't pin it really down and define spirituality because it doesn't have boundaries. It's associated with everything uh, uh, in terms of human experience and endeavor. Hmm. Um, but I, I, I guess it's helpful to think of spirituality as that part of a person's awareness which gives their life meaning and purpose, something mm -hmm. deeply personal, affords a sense of belonging and connection to uh, what you might call the sacred whole of the, uh, the universe, really, a, a, some sort of sense of cosmic uh, continuity and uh, wholeness, uh, a, a kind of a realm outside or beyond or cradling the, the dualistic uh, everyday experiences we have. So it's a, unif a unitary, exp an experience of unification, if you like, a ki and kinship 
mm. with one another, with all other people, despite differences of, of um, age or, or sex or race or religion, mm. despite any differences, a sense of being with and part of the lives of other people, and also being with and part of nature, the planet, the, the lives of uh, all, all creatures. So it's it's spirituality is about, put it very simply, is about a deeply personal sense of unity. Mm-hmm. Uh, very very beautifully put. And in today's society, uh, a lot of people enjoying meditating or having a peaceful moment. Uh, what role does that play in promoting both um, spiritual growth and improved mental health? Yes, well, I think I've begun to answer the question with the earlier part about the yeah. culture we live in. But I, I, and I think, I think it's absolutely wonderful that people enjoy meditating and having peaceful moments. I think it's necessary, in a way, to go mm. deeper, and that, that is to, to employ a, a regular and disciplined practice, uh, perhaps ideally uh, with the help of teachers and also with spiritual friends, you could say, a, a, a community of uh, like-minded people with the spiritual values, values like uh, honesty and compassion and kindness and mm. tolerance, um, and and therefore it m- m- tends to be better when these spiritual practices are engaged with, as I say, in a regular and disciplined way, within the context of an established faith tradition. Not necessarily that, but, you know, it's very often helpful. That's where you find in the s- scriptures of the various religions you have treasure houses of wisdom, mm. and in the people, uh, some at least of the, gu- of the leading people, you have spiritually gifted and, and uh, mm-hmm. mature individuals uh, to take as teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, doctor, you have um, defined uh, spirituality, uh, what you believe is spirituality. Um, my question is that, um, uh, can a person be a spiritual man or a woman uh, without being a religious uh, person? Yes, well, I think the answer is yes. I think in the, I think the first starting point is that all beings are spiritual. Mm-hmm. All beings have a spiritual dimension. We have a, a physical and biological aspect or dimension to our beings, our bodies. We have a psychological aspect, which is our, our mental lives. We mm-hmm. have a social aspect, which is obviously our, our relationships, our communities, but we have also a spiritual dimension. So physical, biological, psychological, social and spiritual, five dimensions, all interrelated, seamlessly inter- interconnected. But the spiritual is the ultimate in the sense that it's the original. It's where it, it's the non-material dimension of w- which we all uh, share and mm-hmm. in which we are all joined uh, and which we have through spiritual practice, I think particularly meditation practice, the ability to, as it were, acquire the skill or train ourselves to communicate with that dimension. Mm-hmm. That's what prayer ultimately is about, I think, yeah. particularly silent prayer. But do you believe that uh, spiritual, I mean, uh, religion, any religion play any role 
in in spirituality um, in terms of uh, increasing your spirituality increasing your faith uh, sorry, I'm not clear about your question. The, uh, you're saying, is religion relevant or useful? Of course, yes, indeed, that's what I am saying. All right. And, uh, Doctor, can you share any any clinical research that uh, may have explored the relationship or connection between uh, spirituality and mental health outcomes? Yes. And um, your key points as well. Well, Actually, I'm, I've got here a copy of the, the Oxford Handbook of Religion and Health mm-hmm. uh, by Koenig, McCulloch and Larson, which was published in 2001, and it's been updated since. It's, it's absolutely full of research. It's a, it's, a, it's a study, a collection of all the research relating religion mm-hmm. and spirituality to health and to mental health. It's written in sections, different sections on uh, on, for instance, uh, uh, cerebrovascular disease is one section, and, um, and and another section on other different kinds of illness, but also a very large amount on um, on mental health conditions. And uh, by and large, the uh, there's another book I have, the Handbook of the Psychology of Religion and Spirituality, uh, edited by. Um, Paluzian and Park, published in 2005. So for, for now, 20 years plus, there have been um, not just research, but collections of research. Mm-hmm. Today we have the International Society for the Study of Spirituality. It's been going for um, 10, 12, 15 years. Um, it was what formerly called the British Association for the Study of Spirituality. They have a journal, the Journal for the Study of Spirituality. There is really just an enormous amount of clinical research um, that uh, it has explored the, uh, the relationships and connection between spirituality and mental health, and it is very largely positive, mm. very very largely positive. But of course, not everybody is convinced by what others would consider co- cast iron evidence, and so I'd like to just add a little something here about the uh, about a different kind of research that is going on, which is individuals personal research that is to say it's much more you can read about let me think of an example you read about mm. for instance the um experience people people have through near-death experiences that are life-changing but if you actually meet two or three people who've been through these that is much more convincing and perhaps if there's a minute i can tell you about a, a medical student i used to teach medical students um, about um, spirituality and healthcare, and I used to mm. ask them to go and interview patients and ask the patients about their spiritual lives. And um, one one student came back to the class and told everybody that um, she had spent an hour talking to a patient uh, and asked about their spiritual life, and came away thinking that in three years this was the first time as a medical student that she had felt she had helped somebody. Now that's a deeply personal experience that this student has had in a relation with this patient that she had had a conversation with about the things that matter most to the patient. And uh, I, I think there's not enough of that kind of thing going on really between uh, healthcare givers and their, and their patients. Mm. Just, just getting into conversation about these deeply important matters and finding out what, what gives the patient strength and courage and hope in times of adversity. 
All right. Um, Dr. Larry, thank you very much for being on the show. It's a delight to have you on the show. Um, thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. May peace be yeah. my, my pleasure. Peace be with you too. Yeah, thank you very much. So that was Dr. Larry, a former GP and psychiatrist, uh, the best-selling author of books on happiness well-being wisdom and spirituality including the psychology of spirituality and the and the big book of wisdom um for more details uh, see his website uh, www.ldc52.co.uk um uh, he is also responsible for the helpful worldwide wave of wisdom website uh, which is www.www.w.net well um by the grace of allah we had a good start to the segment um but in regards to to um our segment it was um in fact about a study led by researchers at the Harvard TH Chan School of Public Health and Brigham <laughs> and Women's Hospital stated that spirituality must be incorporated into the treatment of serious illness and overall health their findings indicate that attention to spirituality in in serious illness and in health should be a vital part of future whole person centered care and the results should stimulate more national discussion and progress on how spirituality can be incorporated into this type of value sensitive care so in that regards um i mean the uh, dr larry has has made a lot of things clear for us and helped us understand um but daniel if you could just explain what what is the meaning of of spirituality and and its purpose and what can we learn from islam in in, in this regard Uh, I mean, what I understood and uh, um, uh, while being an MD is that uh, spirituality is to connect oneself to um, God Almighty, uh, who is the creator of every uh, everything, who is who is omnipotent, and uh, who has no uh, no fault or error, and all the good attributes uh, belong to Him, and. Uh, and this is a journey uh, it doesn't happen um, just uh, uh, within a day uh, rather it's it's a journey which which expands over the course of one's whole lifetime and uh, where a person tries to you know purifies his uh, or her inner self uh, his soul um, and then excel in this path to to display the uh, moral qualities um but uh, then the question arises that uh, all right um we need spirituality um but how, what are the ways to increase in spirituality well, we'll we'll come back there um to 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 the ways of increasing our spirituality sure. uh, we have um with us uh, uh, we have a caller with us um mr salim rahim so we'll let's let's, let's speak to him uh, assalamu alaikum good morning and welcome to the breakfast show Yes, how are you? I'm good, alhamdulillah. And how are yourself? Yeah, alhamdulillah, yeah. Uh, regarding this spirituality and health, I just wanted to briefly mention my own point of view. I just believe that, in actual fact, spirituality is the main and highest order we have to follow. If we don't have spirituality, we cannot repair within ourselves. human beings have been trained by human beings 
And if I, for instance, have a stomach pain, I could either go to my GP and say I've got stomach pain and the GP will offer me a remedy which will be a pill or something or another and I will take it and I'll feel good and better within myself. Hmm. But if I stop and I seek guidance from the Almighty and seek forgiveness of my sins, ask Allah the Almighty to grant me a better health, more often than not, I've forgotten about my stomach pain. I've, uh, within myself, within myself, I've improved myself. I've kept positive, seeking guidance. And over time, I've even forgotten about the stomach issue mm. and it's gone. So spirituality, in my uh, uh, understanding, it makes us feel positive. It makes us believe in myself. It makes me seek guidance from the Almighty and it enables me to repair from within myself. That's perfect, and it's amazing to see that how um, you know that we we believe, and that you have such a strong strong connection, and you have a, mm. such a strong belief that if you put your mind to it, and if you put your heart towards the prayer, then Allah the Almighty, you know, um, God God the Almighty, He helps us in every in every way, in every aspect, even physically and spiritually. It's all connected. You're exactly right there. Um, uh, Brother Slim. Um, um, Good morning and welcome to the show. Uh, it's me, uh, Daniel speaking. Um, Brother Slim, um, what's your belief? What do you believe that um, how your connection with Khalifa uh, al-Masih, His Holiness Mirza Masroor Ahmad, helps you in your spirituality? Definitely, definitely. I think it does. I'm striving every time because when he prays and he prays for all of humanity, when he has that emotional connection with Allah the Almighty and he's the actual pinnacle of humanity to be honest with you it really and truly whenever I see him I get that emotional uh, connection and it's just so wonderful I just really and truly say that um, with with our Khalifa with, with Hazur his, his prayers and blessings really and truly makes us uh, continue well, Brother Salim Rahim, um, thank you very much for for joining us and and giving your insight on on the topic. Um, and okay. we we hope to hear from you in the future as well. Thank you very much. All the best. Well, Daniel, um, going back to what you were mentioning in regards to spirituality and how we can increase this, increase in this, if you can just shed some light on that for our listeners. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, just to again briefly um, tell, um, tell you about the spirituality. Uh, what I believe and understand is spirituality is that uh, to connect uh, oneself to God Almighty, and uh, yeah. And then the question arises that what are the ways um, to increase in one's uh, spirituality? And uh, for uh, for this, um, as we know that it is a custom of um, God Almighty that He sends down His prophets, um, and uh, also He sends down um, His uh, set of laws to follow. And the prophets are the the representatives of um, uh, His image. And by following the set of laws uh, which he sends on uh, on his prophets, and by following the examples of the prophets, um, I believe that uh, uh, one can achieve um, the 
the moral excellences uh, or the goal of moral excellences and um, yeah, as we know that um, prophets are always the best uh, role models to follow mm. i mean we can see in the society people are following um, different uh, celebrities different influences on, yeah, on, on certainly. Social, life, social media because the thing is uh, if you're following a certain person obviously you're gonna you know follow his um, uh, tread on his footsteps you're gonna and be attracted to whatever yeah. they kind of do and, and eat and drink as well certainly yeah so if we are following a person who is uh, who has uh, good moralities uh, who is good and decent in his um, character obviously we're gonna follow his character and uh, try to uh, mold our uh, life accordingly so even even being with someone in someone's company has a huge impact on on your mental state and 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 your physical state as well at the same time if you're with someone who is um if you have if you have, if you're in a group of friends th- and they're more like a lazy group let's say so you tend to become lazy lazy yeah. and if you're in with a more active group uh, with a more active lifestyle then you're most likely to become more active as well at the same time it's it's just this human psyche which is from what i understand and what i believe makes the difference as well so that's why we should always try to keep our role models good if we're um, with the right people and we are focusing on our spiritual and our health then that can help us and help us to help other people as well at the same time just by um you know the being with with the, with the right kind right. of yeah group. certainly and also the quran uh, talks about this very uh, subject as well that we should always keep the good company and also he says uh, the quran says that um, you have the best role model uh, in the life of the holy prophet uh, may, Allah, may peace and blessings Allah be upon him so by following his, his examples his role model uh, obviously one can you know um, um, enhance in uh, in the excellences of moralities um, and um, that's um, uh, that's how we can you know excel in spirituality now um, you know just as our caller said that you know spirituality when he's when he's having some sort of an issue with his with his healthy praise for it yeah you know what do researchers say about spirituality and and um, the importance in in treatment and health I mean researchers argue that um, spirituality should be integrated into healthcare um, because it addresses the person as a whole um, recognizing uh, that physical health is deeply intertwined uh, intertwined with mental and emotional and spiritual well-being and uh, it can you know um, provide patients with uh, with kind of a uh, sense of hope and purpose during their healing journey mm. and uh, it keeps them motivating uh, and helps them to adhere to treatment plans and uh, actively you know participate in their recovery and um, that uh, these are what researchers says and uh, i have a quote uh, of um, the promised messiah uh, uh, uh he says that um, he explains uh, uh, regarding spirituality he says that uh, the answer the holy quran uh, says about the natural state of man that he has a very strong relationship with his uh, moral and spiritual states so much so that even a person's manner of uh, eating and drinking affects his moral and spiritual states uh, so he says that there's a very deep connection between uh, a person's 
physical state and his uh, spiritual state. So what he does uh, in his spiritual state affects his uh, physical state and his physical state affects his uh, spirituality. And, uh, you know, uh, there is a also, uh, I can recall a hadith a saying of the Holy Prophet um, that he said one said that a strong believer is better and is more lovable uh, to Allah than a weak believer. And there is good uh, in everyone. So obviously, um, we can understand by the saying of this very um, saying of the Holy Prophet that uh, a believer need to be a strong, uh, strong in uh, physically, because it affects his spirituality or her spirituality as well. Um, so we have an audio clip, Daniel, which is a spiritual enlightenment essential to teach individual soul, and that's a question answered by Hazrat Mirza Ahmed, the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Is spiritual enlightenment essential to each individual soul? Spiritual enlightenment essential to each individual soul. This question is not valid because the word essential is not an apt word to apply to this situation. It's a, it's a natural, um, I mean, it's for granted. Spiritual enlightenment and human being are uh, just inseparable. Only the stages of spiritual enlightenment are different. So what you call ignorance, even there you find some sort of spiritual enlightenment, but very feeble. So it's impossible for a human being to be totally without spiritual enlightenment. Only there are degrees, like the degrees in consciousness. Some people think the animals are not conscious or not to a degree which where they think is uh, uh, it, it matters. In reality, all animals are conscious. Some have a feeble consciousness, some have a more sensitive consciousness. Even the plants have consciousness. So when you look at the plants, you can't conceive yourself to be in a position of plant and yet think. Yet we know there is evidence from the Holy Quran, positive evidence, that there, there is life, plant life, and uh, there is consciousness there too. So, existence and consciousness, existence and spiritual enlightenment, they all go together, they are inseparable things. Um, that was uh, His Holiness the Fourth Caliph explaining uh, regarding spirituality. Uh, to wrap up this segment, uh, I would like to um, do it uh, in the wording of uh, his uh, of the Promised Messiah. Uh, he says that uh, spirituality can be achieved only through the use of every moral quality in its proper place and on its proper occasion and through treading faithfully upon the ways of God and through being wholly devoted to Him. So, uh, a very exciting um, segment that was and uh, now we are heading towards our 8 o'clock uh, news. Um, and it's such a, such a, such a huge, um, it's such a huge segment and topic that yeah. no matter how many times you do it, we probably can never do justice to it. Half so, an hour is not enough for this. Yeah, segment, so hopefully yeah. next time we can have another segment for it where we can discuss more and 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 learn more as well 
for ourselves and for our listeners as well. Certainly. Um, so, dear listeners, do join us again after the eight o'clock news. The conditions of initiation, bed, in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, by Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of Qadian, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him. The initiate shall solemnly promise one that he or she shall abstain from shirk, association of any partner with God, right up to the day of his or her death. Two, that he or she shall keep away from falsehood, fornication, adultery, trespasses of the eye, debauchery, dissipation, cruelty, dishonesty, mischief and rebellion, and will not permit himself or herself to be carried away by passions, however strong they might be. Three, that he or she shall regularly offer the five daily prayers in accordance with the commandments of God and the Holy Prophet and shall try his or her best to be regular in offering the tahajjud and invoking the rood on the Holy Prophet that he or she shall make it his or her daily routine to ask forgiveness for their sins, to remember the bounties of God and to praise and glorify Him. 4. That under the impulse of any passions, he or she shall cause no harm whatsoever to the creatures of Allah in general and Muslims in particular, neither by his or her tongue, nor by his or her hands, nor by any other means. 5. That he or she shall remain faithful to God in all circumstances of life, in sorrow and happiness, adversity and prosperity, in felicity and trial, and shall in all conditions remain resigned to the decree of Allah and keep himself or herself ready to face all kinds of indignities and sufferings in his way, and shall never turn away from it at the onslaught of any misfortune. On the contrary, he or she shall march forward. 6. That he or she shall refrain from following un-Islamic customs and lustful inclinations and shall completely submit himself or herself to the authority of the Holy Quran and shall make the word of God and the sayings of the Holy Prophet the guiding principle in every walk of his or her life. 7. That he or she shall entirely give up pride and vanity and shall pass all his or her life in humbleness, cheerfulness, forbearance, and meekness. 8. That he or she shall hold faith, the honor of faith, and the cause of Islam dearer to him or her than his or her life, wealth, honor, children, and all other dear ones. 9. That he or she shall keep himself or herself occupied in the service of God's creatures for his sake only and shall endeavor to benefit mankind to the best of his or her God-given abilities and powers. 10. That he or she shall enter into a bond of brotherhood with this humble servant of God, pledging obedience to me in everything good for the sake of Allah and remain faithful to it till the day of his or her death, that he or she shall exert such a high devotion 
in the observance of this bond as is not to be found in any other worldly relationship and connections demanding devoted dutiful a new station the voice of islam with live discussions religion and culture understand the true teachings of islam with the voice of islam a'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem bismillahir rahmanir rahim in the name of allah the most gracious ever merciful dear listeners um welcome back and we are now starting our second segment which is pork related hepatitis e virus transmission a global perspective in this regard if anybody um would like to call in the number is 02086877878 where we can discuss uh, the topic or if you want to tweet us uh, our twitter handle is at voice of islam uk now um the article says that hepatitis e virus transmission is a major health problem swine and and processed pork products play a role in contributing to the transmission of this virus through food A comprehensive study estimated the the prevalence of of hepatitis E virus in domestic pigs, wild boars and pork products. At the global HIV in in at the at the global HIV infection in pork and widespread contamination of of um sorry, at the global level they found that nearly 60% of domestic pigs and 27 and 27% of wild boars had hepatitis E virus infection the results of one study indicated a high prevalence of of HIV infection in pork and widespread contamination of pork products these findings are important for better understanding the global um epidemiology of of hepatitis E uh, infection in the human population So Daniel um could you kindly um for our listeners explain what hepatitis E is and how is it infected Um so hepatitis E is a, a viral infection that uh, affects the liver it is caused uh, by the hepatitis E virus uh, HEV which is a um a member of a happy variety uh, family Uh, hepatitis E is primarily uh, transmitted through the uh, fecal oral route uh, meaning it's uh, spread um, when fecal matter from an infected person contaminates food water or other objects that are the, then ingested by an uninfected individual so it is uh, recognized as the leading cause of uh, acute viral hepatitis and uh, globally it is estimated that um, approximately 939 million um, corresponding to like one in eight individuals have um, ever been infected by with hiv um so there are you know um different ways to which hepatitis e can be transmitted and there are four different ways it could be from we, water food we'll, 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 we'll yeah. come back to to the, the ways hepatitis can be transmitted yeah. but in this regard if you can um let us know let our readers know um the 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 islamic perspective about um kind of like about what islam teaches us about 
pork and and swine and and to refrain can you can you share some um, yeah sure because in this regard uh, it is very important um, that we look upon the teachings of islam um, the directives because uh, um there are some very specific directives uh, mentioned in the holy quran as uh, in quran chapter 2 verse 173 173 to 174 uh the almighty states that he has made unlawful to you only that which dies of itself and blood and the flesh of swine and that on which the name of any other than allah has been uh, invoked so there are four things uh, which allah the almighty has made unlawful that is number one which dies itself number two the blood number three the flesh of swine and lastly um, that on which the name of any other than allah has been invoked and um, Uh, then Allah Almighty states that, uh, and he who is driven by necessity, um, being neither disobedient nor exceeding the limit, it shall be no sin for him. Surely Allah, Allah is most forgiving and merciful. So Islam teaches uh, that harmful uh, things are directly harmful to our moral and spirituality, as um, mentioned in the first segment as well, um, uh, in uh, spirituality and health, that um, spirituality has a direct relation to uh, our physical uh, form as well. Because what we eat, what uh, we digest affects our moralities as well. And... Um, I believe that uh, the promised Messiah um, has um, very, you know, uh, has explained at length in his book uh, the philosophy of the teachings of Islam that um, uh, experience also showed that different types of food affect the intellect and the mind in different ways. Uh, he gives the example that, for example, um, careful observation would uh, disclose that people who refrain altogether from eating meat, uh, they gradually suffer a decline of the faculty of bravery. They lose courage and thus suffer the loss of uh, a divinely bestowed praiseworthy faculty. This is uh, reinforced by the evidence of the divine law of nature that the herbivorous animals do not possess the same degree of courage as do carnivorous ones. The same applies to birds. Thus, there is no doubt that morals are affected by food. Conversely, those who are given to a diet uh, consisting mainly of meat and eat very little of greens suffer a decline of meekness and humility. Those who adopt the middle course develop both type of moral qualities. That is why God Almighty has said in the Holy Quran that Kulu Vashrabu Walatusrifu that is to say that eat meat and other foods but do not eat um, anything to excess lest your moral state by adversely affected and your health might suffer so uh, you so he has you know very um, beautifully explained that why is it uh, necessary to uh, eat um, um, meat and the um, the thing the, the things which are green the because 
uh, it kind of you know you kind of develop uh, both moral qualities the humility as well and the bravery as well so it is very important to uh, to get into the middle way um daniel um we were supposed to have um, a, a guest with us uh, professor linda scoby um but unfortunately she wasn't able to 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 come um yeah. due to some some of her reasons um but she did uh, ask us to read out um the questions that we asked her and the answers yeah. uh, which she has replied to um and also for the listeners she did send her apologies that she couldn't join us um but nevertheless we will um uh, go through it so i'll ask you the questions and then if you can just read what professor linda scoby um, has sure has has um uh has has left for us so how is the hepatitis e virus uh, transmitted so regarding this the answer which he gave to us is that uh, she says that um the important thing to understand about uh, hiv is that it has several different forms known as um genotypes uh, what this means is that the virus differs in its transmission routes um and also the outcome of the infection hiv uh, genotypes can be pre- present in the resource limited areas with reduced hygienic conditions as well as industrialized countries um transmission is mainly through contaminated drinking water pork their boar products um shellfish fruit or vegetables and via hiv containing blood products uh, there have been protocols in uh, uh, in place to test blood for this virus in the uk since 2016 only certain genotypes can be transmitted via the consumption of contaminated food indeed it is still unknown what the actual prevalence of the virus is in food globally and if it is directly infectious can pork cause the hepatitis e disease um um so again the answer which she gave to us is that she says that Um it is widely known that pigs can be infected with with HIV and that um, the impact on the animal is minimal as indicated in the review you sent me um she says uh, there have been many studies investigating the presence of the virus in pigs and other swine but it doesn't address the question as to whether it is present in the animals at slaughter age and therefore potentially in any product derived from the animal uh, there are actually very few reported studies where the virus was found in meat not only pig and uh, were related to a case of infection uh, we also do not know uh, how much of the virus needs to be present in food to cause infection one of the main problems is um, is having a suitable model in which to test the uh, the presence of infectivity and this has hindered research in this area so then um how, how do we prevent from hepatitis e being infected generally obviously a very a very um, pertaining question and uh, to this question she says that to to avoid infection 
the guidance provided by the NHS and uh, the FSA and the FSA are recommended. Um, in summary, there is no vaccine licensed for HEV except in China. So you can, you know, uh, reduce the likelihood of infection by cooking meat and ma- meat products thoroughly, uh, avoiding the consumption of raw or undercooked meat and shellfish, ensuring that uh, when traveling to countries where HEV is uh, endemic, that you use bottled or boiled drinking water. You can also find guidance um, here at, here at uh, Hepatitis E, symptoms, transmission, prevention, treatment, uh, slash gov.uk. So www.gov.uk. So the WHO also, the WHO also provide guidance for the other genotypes, Hepatitis E, um, and the British Liver Trust also provide useful information uh, hepatitis E um, slash um, she says British liver trust um, based on your research on the hepatitis E virus and the foods that carry it especially pork could you please advise our listeners uh, to avoid hepatitis E virus and other diseases hmm what she says that is a very difficult question. So, Baz, you have asked a very difficult question to, um, to mm-hmm. her. But obviously she answers um, again that she says that at, at this time, as we know, we are still carrying our research to establish the parameters of the HEV virus in order to provide this information. When traveling, it is key to follow guidance for countries where the virus may be endemic. So, in terms of foodborne disease in general all guidance by the fsa should be followed uh, with reference to storage and cooking so as above avoidance uh, of undercooked products and good hygiene is important and applicable to all food standards uh, standards uh, scotland provide lots of advice in relation to food um, causes of foodborne illness Food Standard Scotland, uh, Food Standard Scotland. So, so that was um, that was a, a set of questions and and, and answers um, from Professor Linda Scobie, uh, who was supposed to be with us today, but uh, sent her apologies uh, to to the Voice of Islam and to um, our dear listeners. Um, Daniel, I think we have a um, an audio clip uh, in regards to um, the, the the segment at hand, and it's basically a question, which is why are Muslims forbidden from eating pork? And again, this un- this, this this question is answered by Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed, may Allah be pleased with him, the fourth Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. So uh, let's listen to to this wonderful answer. And uh, secondly, I wanted to ask why Muslims are forbidden to have pig's meat. Oh yes, I was expecting that because somebody asked about alcohol and I thought the second part would be coming. Yes. You see, pig's meat is mentioned in the Holy Quran, is forbidden as uh, uncouth or something which is not good for us. Now... I can't explain this medically here, but I know that medically also 
it has been mentioned that this flesh of meat has been responsible for most diseases found in those countries, for many diseases where they eat pig. You see, the, the, for instance, this um, crisscross skin with reddish uh, marks, threaded skin uh, with, with fleshes and very ugly looking skin. If you ever happen to go to a seaside during summer and you see the bare flesh, human flesh, you know, bathing in the sun, it's a horrifying sight mostly because you see the skin all is a bad shape, thick uh, fat covered with uh, maps of, of red veins, etc. That is mostly caused by eating of, of pork. But some doctors have written some extensive essays, articles on this subject, that pork is not a good meat. It is not, in, in the final analysis, it's not good for health. But that is comparatively less important. What is more important is that every animal has been created by God. Life is not, import, not only important, it is sacred. We eat of flesh of some animals not because we have a direct right to, do, to kill any animal. It is only because we believe God is the proprietor, God is the creator. If he permits, only then we are uh, within our rights to slaughter an animal, kill him for the purpose of eating the flesh. So suddenly we come across, don't eat this meat then we know whether it is out of sanction from Allah that we had been eating or just out of our own desire. If we abstain from meat, eating that meat which is forbidden, then really we demonstrate that we are eating whatever we eat out of permission. And wherever the permission is withheld, we don't eat. So, uh, to test human obedience to God, in different areas, different trials are kept in religion. So in the area of eating, it works as a trial for us. If we really believe that God is the proprietor, He is the creator, then where, when He says, don't eat, we must stop. It's all right. We won't eat. Like sometimes, mothers tell you of the food. They know some food is bad for you. You cannot understand why. But they told you, no, don't, don't, don't drink this, don't eat that. And because they give you all the good food, it will be so bad of you to rebel against this order and say, no, I must eat this. So you say, all right, mother, if you have forbidden me to eat this particular thing or to stop drinking Coca-Cola or do this or do that, I'll do that, it's okay. You don't understand. Why? Yet you obey. It is exactly the similar situation. God has forbidden you to eat certain things, to drink certain things. One he has chosen from the drinks, one he has chosen from the flesh, and uh, that is our trial. So even if you don't understand, you say, all right, you have given us everything and we obey you. 
Okay? Um, that was His Holiness, uh, the fourth Khalifa of the Amdi Muslim community, explaining uh, regarding why Muslims are forbidden to eat pork. And um, regarding this, uh, I also found something uh, from the writings of the Promised Messiah. Um, and um, again from the book uh, from the book that uh, the philosophy of the teachings of Islam uh, in which he explains that why is the flesh of swine prohibited so he says that um, on matter to be kept in mind in this context is that in very name of this animal God has indicated the reason for the prohibition of its flesh so the Arabic word for swine is khinzir which is a compound of khans and ara, which means I see it very foul. Khans uh, means very foul and ara means I see it. Does the very name that God Almighty gave this uh, to this animal at the beginning uh, point uh, points to its uh, uncleanness? It is a curious uh, coincidence that in Hindi, in Hindi language, this animal is also called uh, called sur, which is a compound of su and ara. This also means I see it very foul. It should not be a matter of surprise that the Arabic word su should have found its way into Hindi. Uh, we have established into our book, uh, Minarul Rahman, that Arabic is the mother of all languages and that um, Arabic words are to be found in all languages so <clears throat> then he says that um, um, uh, um, furthermore he says that the eating of uh, carrion is also prohibited in Islamic law for the same reason uh, that is to say it affects the moral qualities uh, adversely and is also uh, harmful to physical health uh, the blood of an animal that is strangled or is beaten to death remains inside the blood of the dead animal and they are all uh, carry on. Um, that uh, can the blood of a dead animal stay in the same condition by remaining inside? No. It is obvious that the blood of such an animal is soon corrupted and corrupts uh, the whole flesh. Uh, it is established by recent research that uh, in that time he says that it is established by the recent research that the germs in such blood uh, spread a poisonous uh, corruption in the flesh of the dead animal. So again he was explaining um, as you know earlier a verse was also presented before, uh, before you that um, the four other things which Allah the Almighty has, uh, you know, uh, prohibited to consume, uh, which is uh, the one which dies itself, the blood and the uh, flesh of swine. So he has uh, beautifully explained uh, their reason. Why is uh, well, it prohibited? Yeah, well, if, if, apart from, you know, being unlawful in Islam, like you've explained, uh, what are the harmful effects of, of consuming um, pork for health? If you can just summarize it. Uh, in a couple of points for our listeners. Um, 
so um, um, consuming pork can have uh, potential health uh, health risks uh, due to factor such as its nutrient composition cooking methods and the potential for uh, contamination it's important to note that uh, these risks can vary based on how the pork is prepared so the overall diet and individual health conditions um, some potential harmful effects of consuming pork for health are uh, saturated fat and cholesterol um, the processed meats uh, bacterial contamination um, parasitic infections allergy allergies and sensitivities um, and uh, religious and cultural factors uh, all factors also are involved in this well uh, jazakallah uh, thank you very much daniel for that um this now brings us to the end of um the second segment and um we will now move head head, head on towards um segment three which is international um uh, li- literacy day um uh international li- literacy day mm-hmm. and we'll um continue this segment um just after a uh, short break are non-muslims allowed inside a mosque anyone is allowed inside a mosque as long as they are clean and dressed modestly people should also take off their shoes before entering the mosque to keep the mosque clean as the worshippers have to prostrate on the floor people of any faith are also allowed to pray in a mosque as long as they are not worshipping idols a good example of this is when prophet muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him allowed a group of christians to hold their prayer service inside his mosque in Medina, Zurkani. The Ahmadiyya Muslim Association UK has built several mosques around Britain, including the first mosque in London, 1924, and the largest mosque in Western Europe, in Morden, opened in 2003. Um, coming back to our segment, International Literacy Day, um, since 1967, International Literacy Day celebrations um, have taken place annually around the world to remind the public of the importance of literacy as a matter of dignity and human rights, and to advance the literacy agenda towards a more literate and sustainable society. International Literacy Day uh, 2023 will be uh, celebrated worldwide under the theme Promoting Literacy for a World in Transition Building the Foundation for Sustainable and Peaceful Societies Um, So what would be the purpose of holding um, World Literacy Day? Uh, International Literacy Day, uh, established by UNESCO in 1967, aims to highlight the significance of literacy as a fundamental human right and a pathway to personal and societal development. It serves as a platform to raise awareness about the importance of literacy in achieving social and economic progress, reducing inequalities and promoting sustainable development. This day encourages governments, organizations and individuals to take action towards improving literacy rates, um, advocating for quality education and 
addressing literacy challenges on a, a on a global scale. Um, Daniel, if you could, for our listeners, if you can kindly um, um, give an insight and give the Islamic perspective about literacy and, and, and knowledge and what you can shed some light on, on this topic, please. Um, so why not, um, <clears throat> you know, as we look um, at the teachings of Islam uh, and then um, travel back um, that era, um, just 14, 1500 years ago, mm. uh, we see many examples in the life of the Holy Prophet and the companions of the Holy Prophet. Uh, and um, we see that um, the how much, uh, you know, Islam emphasizes on seeking knowledge. Uh, to hold the pen, to read and write, and um, um, obviously, uh, if I, if you ask me this question, I would obviously present the first very few verses which were revealed upon the upon the Holy Prophet and it will show you the importance and significance of uh, seeking knowledge. And the very first few verses which were revealed upon uh, the Holy Prophet uh, was that um, um, convey thou in the name of thy Lord who created, created man from a clot of blood, convey and thy Lord is most generous who taught men by pen, taught men uh, what he knew not. Um, so in this uh, from these few verses you can understand uh, how the importance of um, uh, seeking knowledge then the prophet of islam uh, you know he established uh, established an excellent education system um, through which uh, the intellectual standards of that society was raised um, literate and uh, well-educated people were instructed to teach the literate uh, special measures were put in place to, to provide education to orphans and other vulnerable members of society. So this was all done, you know, so that uh, the weak and powerful um, could stand on their own two feet and advance. And, um, but obviously a very lengthy topic again, uh, even uh, through the... And um, we'll definitely come back lens. to and we'll obviously ask you a few more questions in regards to Islam and Sure. Um, the the Ahmadi Muslim community as well. But right now we have uh, with us our next guest, uh, Professor Claire Ferno. Um, professor Claire is a professor of applied uh, linguistics at the University of Reading, where she teaches and researches into academic literacy. So she is also a a, a teaching and learning dean a, at Reading. She works with home and international students and is involved in academic sport for all students. Uh, Professor Claire Ferner, uh, welcome to the show. Good morning. Uh, a very warm welcome. Good morning. Thank you. Um, Professor, very qu first question to you is that uh, why is uh, literacy activity very important to be implemented in education? I think that's a really good question and I think actually in today's world it's more important than ever because without literacy our children can't progress in education, mm. they, can't, they can't learn, but it's more than just functional literacy, being able to read and write at a basic level, it's also the need to be critically literate, 
so that when they read, mm. they can question what they're reading and, and challenge it and, and, and bring in their own opinions and their knowledge from other sources. So it's a really important skill. And without it, children and adults are very disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. And as a teacher, advice to a teacher, what can a teacher do to you know, create uh, effective literacy activities at school? Well, in an English school, where English is being taught as, as, as one of the languages of literacy mm. uh, and the main one, we, it's really important to teach phonics. English is actually a really difficult language to learn to read in. Mm-hmm. There's broadly sort of two types of languages. There's the um, uh, shallow type, transparent, such as Italian or Spanish, German, where the sound of uh, the, the, the symbol, the letter and the sound are the same always. And English is like German, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, it's like French, some other languages where there is not a regular correlation between the letter and the sound so that you get really challenging issues around, for example, in English, you can have sa- words that sound alike but have different meanings. So mm-hmm. you can have, for example, bow, bow for your hair or bow for a musical instrument, a violin or another musical instrument with the same spelling. Or you can have the same sound but different spellings like the number two. But also you can say, you know, he came to, T-O-O, or, mm-hmm. you know, we want to go to town, T-O. Really challenging. So those yeah. are called homophones. And then on the other side of it, <laughs> you can have the same uh, spelling but a different sound. So you can have to take a bow. Um, which is B-O-W, same spelling as bow for hair, bow for violin, but but, uh, different pronunciation. English is really challenging, and um, so therefore you you really do need to do phonics to give children the relationship between the shape of the letter and the sound of the letter, but not the name. We don't teach A-B-C, it's A-B-C-A, so that they are learning the sound that that goes with the letter. But hmm. there'll always be exceptions, and that's one of the real challenges in a language like English. Yeah, beautifully explained. And how to instill a passion for reading in society? Oh, that's a fantastic <laughs> question. <laughs> I don't know how you instill uh, a passion for reading in society, but I think what, what you do is have as many resources as you can, expose children in school and adults as well in um, adult education centers to a range of materials, a range of uh, books, but also online materials. So not expecting everyone, for example, to read fiction. Not everybody likes fiction. Some people prefer more practical, Hmm. real-life, factual stuff. And, and, And I think people should read whatever they want to read. I have a very good friend whose son learnt to read through um, Adventure Man comics mm-hmm. and um, you know it took him a while but he got there and, and he um, you know, went on to, to the Oxford University so you know whatever works whatever works mm-hmm. and the other thing I would say is I think it's really important that people have access to literacy in their mother tongue mm-hmm. their own language so that's really important too if people are lucky enough to be bilingual to have two languages or maybe more at home it's mm-hmm. really good to have uh, access to materials in, in both languages, not just English, but the other language as well. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to rephrase my uh, question that uh, how to instill a passion for reading in society, um, in such a society where uh, there are so many distractions like uh, yes. social media? 
that's a big challenge. Yes. And, and, and one of the big challenges is, I think, around concentration. I think we, we notice at the university quite a lot of students will struggle to concentrate on long texts. And it's because of social media, as you say, but also just access to materials online that are short. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not having to read a whole book very often um, in, in, in real life, outside educational sphere. But I think it's important that people learn that they that, that, that you know by getting into a whole book a whole text you'll have a much richer experience but it's a challenge and i think we have to help them access those materials mm-hmm. and um uh, regarding again sort of, um, the same question that how can digital literacy affect uh, learning and teaching i think it's very hard in today's world to have learning and teaching without digital Mm. literacy but of course there is the digital divide there are a lot of people around the world who don't have access to computers and and, and kids who don't have access to technology so i think we shouldn't exclude them we need to make sure that there are uh, print materials available also for them but that they when they move into digital literacy which we hope they will do as, as time goes by that they have the same skills the same critical abilities to look at digital texts in the same way as they would look at paper-based ones but digital literacy is it's crucial certainly in in our environment the university i work in students are online all the time accessing materials but they mm. need to access them critically they need to be able to say okay that's valid that's a good source that that comes from somebody who knows what they're talking about perhaps mm-hmm. has done research in it and this other text over here <coughs> is completely bogus perhaps produced by artificial intelligence for example and not genuine in terms of um you know written by a human who's done the work the research so it's a really i think it's more and more important in today's world but i think we do have to realize mm-hmm. that around the world a lot of people don't have access to technology and and we should not exclude them from um our, our planning and our educational Mm, fantastic and the culture of uh, you know reading books uh, is currently being uh, changed by digital technology mm-hmm. uh, will this culture do you do you believe that become extinct in the future oh it's a real challenge isn't it i mean technology mm. does help us to store and to access the written written work so books you you know many of my students will access ebooks Mm. So through our library, they can either get a paper copy or an online version. Um, and of course, an e-book is not as heavy to carry around. You have access from where, wherever you are if you've got internet access. So I don't, however, I don't think physical books are obsolete yet. Many of us prefer the experience of reading a book. I think a child, children, for example, will enjoy sitting down to read a, to read a story book or a book about something they're interested in. Um, and, of course, a book can be read when you've got no technology mm. or when your power supply is off. So um, I, I'd be surprised. I think it's been very interesting in Britain just to see how bookstores have kept going. There was a time about 10, 15 years ago when people thought, you know, people are going to stop buying books, bookshops will disappear. That's not true. You know, mm. books. Book, we've got more, more books in some ways, more bookstores than ever. And I think that's because people actually like books. But I think we have to just see what happens with the next generation, with the kids coming up, 
you know, what, what, what they choose to spend their money on. I think that's very, that's very interesting. But I mean, Amazon, Amazon books, that's one of their main um, things that they, they sell. You know, it's a major area of business for them. So mm. I, I, think, I think the jury's out. We'll have to watch. But I'd be, I personally would be very surprised if books disappear. I, th- I think they're such a wonderful resource. Um, but mm, we have to wait and see. Uh, Professor Claire, thank you so much for being on the show. It's uh, it's been a delight to have you on the show. Um, thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's uh, been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, so that was Dr. Uh, professor Claire uh, Ferno. Uh, she's a professor of applied linguistics at the University of uh, Reading. Um, now we have got with us our next guest. Um, Our next guest is uh, Professor Jennifer Rosal. Um, Professor uh, Jennifer Rosal is a professor of digital literacy and director of research and innovation at University of Sheffield's School of Education. Her research examines literacy um, across cultures taking an expansive view of what literacy is in school as well in more informal context. Professor Rosal examines literacy uh, pedagogies through um, a, a multimodal uh, ethnographic lens. Her research spans ages from young children to adults in formal and informal learning environments to analyze ways that people learn and live through digital and multimodal literacy practices. She is the lead editor of Reading Research Quarterly and co-series editor of Digital Culture and Education and the Rutledge Expanding Literacies book series. Her most recent book is entitled The Comfort of Screens, which gives an inside view of the properties, practices and passions of people's screen lives. Uh, Professor Jennifer Lozen, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show at The Voice of Islam Radio. Good morning. How are you? Yes, brilliant, perfect. Uh, and <laughs> I, I hope you are good as well this fine morning. Yes, yes it's beautiful out. It's sunny. Perfect. Warm, uh, yeah. Professor, what is, uh, without any further ado, I mean, what is uh, digital literacy and what uh, what is its uh, role in, in today's digital era? Well, digital literacy is a field that's changed a bit over time. Um, I I remember in the early 2000s, digital literacy was literally just screens in classrooms and um, computers being used as as a part of teaching uh, and reading written texts on on computers. And it's changed quite a bit with all of the um, innovations that that have happened with machine learning and AI and algorithms. And also, obviously, the pandemic has sort of expedited changes. And so digital literacy now combines, and I overheard uh, your discussion with, with the other professor from the University of Reading, traditional skills, which are important, of course, reading and writing and listening and speaking. But digital literacy also now involves the newer kinds of skills that we're all using, right, that, mm. that are... Um, and I, I use, use the word multimodal, which is kind of a big clunky word, but it's a way of describing when we look at a screen now and we see, we often read words and then we might have a visual and then we might navigate to some other text quite quickly. So those newer skills are sort of, they're different, aren't they? So digital literacy is a way of, of describing all of that. Mm. Um, 
and how we navigate across different kinds of texts and platforms when we're on screens. Well, then, what causes low interest in, in reading among people, you know, especially after the, the recent pandemic? Well, yeah, I mean, I got these questions ahead of time, and it's an interesting one because I wear a hat as an editor of a fairly long-standing journal, Reading Research Quarterly. And I would say that the patterns are that, yes, they're low interest in reading um, some kinds of texts, right? So, um, you know, sustained reading of long books and texts Mm. is um, something that's, that's a lower interest. And I think part of that has to do with the darker side of, or the harder side of screen life, which is we don't have the patience, right? We're, mm. we're constantly moving across text. So I think that low reading can be contributed to a movement away from those longer sustained texts. But I also think that with every loss, there's a gain. And part of the gain is that what we're quite good at uh, whether we like it or not, is multitasking and moving across navigationally several different genres of text at once, all right? So if you look at your screen now, you probably have, let's say, email open, maybe mm. Facebook open, maybe you have a website looking at the different people you're interviewing today. So you, you read across these different texts, and we start to naturalize that skill. Mm. So rather than seeing it as a lower interest in reading, I prefer to frame it, reframe it, and think of it more as different kinds of types of reading that we're doing. Mm. And that doesn't mean that in school we shouldn't be teaching sustained reading, because that that needs to happen. Um, so I think I probably have a different sort of an argument uh, than, than a lot of people. Yeah. Um, according to UNESCO, the the number of children who who cannot read and understand simple text is is increasing. Um, so can you tell us what is the solution to, to overcome this? So when you look at the scores in PISA and OECD, mm-hmm. you're seeing patterns in reading. You're seeing that um, children's understanding of simple text is decreasing. Mm-hmm. But then what you're seeing increasing are patterns like being able to, uh, an increase in being able to read across different kinds of informational texts and other texts. Mm-hmm. To me, the issue um, globally is more digital inequalities. So the, the, the decrease worldwide in places like the global south versus the global north. So we think about places like Africa and other places where it's, it's hard to get Wi-Fi sometimes. Um, it's difficult to be able to use screens. I think that that is going to play a big role in in the development of literacy practices. So we, we certainly have books, okay? Mm. Um, and we, but I think the issue of having access and then not only access, but also understanding the nature of digital text. So the less exposure to digital text, the less proficiency you'll develop. So that's one thing. And then the other big issue for the, uh, the reasons children can't read is that the kinds of texts that they're really interested in aren't the sorts of texts that, I mean, I'm older, so I would be interested in in sort of literature and, and sustained reading. But I think because media is so in your face, I think that a lot of children gravitate to that. So yeah. that reading isn't, isn't quite as interesting, right? Yeah, true. There isn't that motivational piece. True. Um, 
what is the aim of of uh, ethnographic research and what methods did you use in this research so ethnographic research is um, we we need those large-scale quantitative studies that give us a sense of numbers right that tell us children aren't reading as much yeah. but I think what we also need is a more detailed view about why this is happening because reading isn't a one-size-fits-all so you and I read in very different ways we have different interests we have uh, we, we might come from different cultural perspectives we read different kinds of books hmm. so when you take two children they'll never read in the same way necessarily and then you add to that background so one of the things that ethnographic research does is you go into a into a school or you go into a community center or um, you're part of a community and you become an insider, as it were. I mean, you can never be a full insider. And you understand that culture and you understand what people do and you start to document and write up notes. So you watch people closely and how they read and how they write and what they do. And it's a way of getting a, a more um, close-up view of the way literacy happens in certain places. So I've spent a lot of time in, in schools in the U.S. and Canada and Australia and here looking at the ways that children read, um, uh, let's say, picture books, or mostly these days over the last decade or 15 years, screens. So how do they play Minecraft and how do they seek out information during gameplay? Or how do they read eBooks, Or how do they... And so I, I'll sit beside them or I'll work with postdocs and we'll document the kinds of literacy practices they engage in. So it's, it's a bit more of a close-up look. Hmm. And finally, last but not least, could you please um, share your perspective on the transition to post-digital times, please? Well, post-digital is not an, a very popular phrase now. I mean, people will yeah. use digital literacy, but post-digital is, is a newer field that I'm working in. And essentially, it has to do with the pandemic. So okay. during the pandemic, we, uh, we rapidly went quite radically onto screens. And what that did for us is we had to have a very steep learning curve. And so whereas we, we might have used Zoom every once in a while, suddenly we were on Zoom all the time. Yeah. And suddenly we were um, having to create, uh, learn online and teach online. So the post-digital is a way of capturing that dramatic shift and how lived screens are now. So the best way to do that in a practical way is to think about, um, uh, let's say, AI or um, algorithms. So. Whereas a decade ago, we would have less of a, a capacity to kind of understand what do algorithms do and how can we go into something like ChatGPT and suddenly have a CV that we've created in ChatGPT. So post-digitality is a way of describing how much these skills are part of our everyday. And going back to your very first question, how can we start to think about literacy as a bit more of a mediation across very traditional notions of, of what being digital is and reading on screens and ebooks and reconcile that with all of the platforms that we work within so how do we read visuals how do we understand the relationship between um listening to a podcast and then writing up something based on that podcast so post digitality is a way of, of trying to create this more expansive space um, Professor Jennifer uh, Russell, uh, thank you very much for, for giving your time and, and answering our uh, questions. Um, yeah. May Allah the Almighty be with you, with all your future work as well. Thank you very much. And oh, we hope to see, he hear from you again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you thank very you much. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.
So that was uh, Professor Jennifer uh, Rosal um, of Digital Literacy and Director of Research and Innovation at University of Sheffield School of Education. Listeners, before we um, conclude for today's um, show, we do have a couple of more um, clips, audio clips, um, which I would want uh, for us to listen to. Um, and the first one is is in regards to the importance of seeking knowledge. Find in the Holy Quran, even the first revelation uh, that Allah the Almighty uh, sent to the Holy Prophet was about reading or acquiring knowledge. Because in the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty says, Ikra kalak, that is read in the name of your Lord. So this, in essence, the Holy Prophet is coming to be given a greater task. And this task, he can only fulfill it uh, through acquiring knowledge. And what acquiring knowledge is that? That is, he have to know Allah the Almighty. Because in Hadith Kudusi, we found Allah the Almighty says, Ta'arifuni kabla an ta'abuduni. Fa'ilam ta'arifuni fa'kaifa ta'abuduni. Know me first before you worship me. Because if you don't know me, there is, not, there is no way you can worship me. So therefore, seeking knowledge is something that is very important. And in the Holy Quran also, Allah the Almighty says, Innama yakshallahu min ibadil ulama'u. So if you want to be someone who is fearful of Allah the Almighty, you have to acquire knowledge because you will know what Allah the Almighty asks you to do and you will know what Allah the Almighty asks you not to do. So through that you will be able to understand the fear of Allah the Almighty. So it is very, very important. In addition, the Prophet of Islam, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, established an excellent education system through which the intellectual standards of that society were raised. Literate and well-educated people were instructed to teach the illiterate. Special measures were put in place to provide education to orphans and other vulnerable members of society. This was, this was all done so that the weak and powerless could stand on their own two feet and advance. Dear listeners, that brings us to the end of today's show. I'd like to thank our producer and our researchers and the tech team. Thank you very much for being with us today.